Russia's attack last night put Europe's largest nuclear power at grave risk. It was incredibly reckless and dangerous, and it threatened the safety of civilians across Russia, Ukraine, and Europe. Nuclear facilities cannot become part of this conflict. Too late. So, what shall we do about it? Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN. Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR in Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internet on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk, and all your favorite podcast sites except for Spotify. Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all around swell fellow. Says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today for another two thrilling broadcast. Uh, joining us momentarily from uh, London, England, uh, somewhere in Great Britain, Desi Doyen? Yes, somewhere in Great Britain. That's all we know. <laughs> a, a longtime Russia Ukraine author and expert and former British war correspondent in Afghanistan, Pakistan, Chechnya. And other uh, nations, countries of the late Soviet Union, Anatole Levin of the Quincy Institute for Responsible State Statecraft will be here with insights on the current disaster playing out in Ukraine, how we got there, what Putin is actually after, and most importantly, how the hell the world can get out of this mess even if it may require some tough choices from uh, all sides, including the U.S. and NATO, as Levin uh, laid out last night in his article headlined How to Get to a Place of Peace for Ukraine. Uh, given all that we have seen over the last week or so uh, coming out of the former Soviet nation turned Western style market economy democracy, finding a place of peace cannot come Soon enough, in my opinion, particularly for the Ukrainian people. But in fact, uh, as many were reminded during several somewhat chilling hours overnight on Thursday for the world, as Europe's largest nuclear power plant reportedly came under attack, parts of it caught fire. 
Desi Doyen, I know you were watching that story particularly closely. What? Oh, where, yes. where are we at today on that? And, and has at least that potential disaster been eased, uh, at least for now? Yes, it has. Uh, the director of the International Atomic Energy Agency says that the reactors there have been stabilized. There has been no additional uh, release of radiation detected. He is now trying to negotiate a visit to Ukraine with the Russians uh, that are now in control of those two nuclear facilities, Chernobyl and the other one that they mm-hmm. t- attacked last night. And uh, he is going to go there to try to give technical assistance, trying to bypass the political part of it and say just technical. I, you know, I got a little irritated uh, when watching that coverage last night because at some point it became clear that it wasn't a an actual plant or a reactor that was on that was on fire. It was an administrative building. Yes, and and that is something that you know is different from a direct shelling attack on a nuclear reactor. Now, nuclear reactors are fortified against plane strikes and direct shelling. The problem would be if somehow they accidentally knock out the water supply mm-hmm. or the electricity that makes sure the cooling gets to the reactors to prevent a meltdown. So any kind of uh, attack on infrastructure directly to the plant could cause some kind of issue. But also this is also about apparently uh, knocking out potentially electricity to the country, which would be an additional mm. pressure point for the citizens that are suffering if through they're the able attack. To, if they're able to get that, that plant offline, which yeah. supplies like a third or, or, or 25%, 25% of the... Uh, of Ukraine, uh, their electricity. Their electricity, so, yeah. yeah. So that's, a, that's another major pressure point that it could be. And listen, it's freezing weather yep. in this next week, so yeah. lack of power, uh, knocking those power plants offline would kill civilians. More on how to get out of that mess, out of the Russia-Ukraine mess momentarily. Maybe a path to peace? Maybe? Hopefully? We'll get there in a second with our guests back here at home. Meanwhile, it was another day for announcing monthly jobs numbers by the Department of Labor on Friday. And as has been the uh, tradition of late, the numbers were hugely good news for the country and at least theoretically for Joe Biden and the Democrats, at least if the American people actually learn about the numbers, if the corporate media properly reports on them, which they certainly have not been doing of late, as we've been pointing out uh, more than a few times on this program in recent months. Now, I heard the news about these big numbers uh, for February uh, coming out this morning on on the radio, but by the time I went down to track down the reports to share them with you, it, well, it was nowhere to be found on the long front page of stories at AP's website. Hmm. I eventually found their story, but I had to do a search for it. Employers added a robust 678,000 jobs in February. Now, robust may be a bit of an understatement, in fact. It was the largest (laughs) monthly total since July, and of course, February is a shorter month. This, according to Labor Department's, uh, the Labor Department's report on Friday, 678,000 jobs is a huge number for one single month and higher than had been expected. Whenever the numbers come in lower than expected, why, it's a disaster for uh, Joe Biden and the Democrats. And it's wall-to-wall coverage. AP has been downplaying these numbers over the past year since Biden took office. We've talked about it when they, you know, for example, reported one monthly number of 225,000 new jobs added early in Biden's uh, administration. They they described that as disappointing, 225,000 jobs, but they called the addition of just 200,000 jobs during one month 
during the uh, Trump administration that they described as robust at the time. That was AP. That, by the way, even though pretty much every single monthly jobs report over the past year has been subsequently revived radically upward in subsequent reports. So that, quote, disappointing 225,000 jobs turned out to be something like five or 600,000 jobs after the revision, which the media outlets conveniently ignored. The change for December numbers, because that's what happened. This case, AP, by the way, did not even mention the Labor Department's revision for the revisions for the numbers for December and January jobs. I had to go to the actual Labor Department data file to find that. The change for December was revised up by 78,000 to more than 588,000 new jobs in December. And the changes for January was revised up to 467,000 for a combined nearly 100,000 more jobs added over those two months than they had previously reported, but they didn't feel it was necessary to mention it today for some reason. For some reason, the American public doesn't need to know that. In addition to the February jobs numbers, the unemployment rate dropped to 3.8% from 4% in January. That extended a sharp decline in joblessness to its lowest level since before the pandemic erupted two years ago. Other economic data also shows the economy maintaining strength as new COVID infections plummet. Consumer spending has risen, spurred by higher wages and savings. A lot of that thanks to the uh, American Rescue Plan passed by Joe Biden and the Democrats and no Republicans at all. Restaurant traffic is, has regained pre-pandemic levels. Hotel reservations are up. Far more Americans are now flying as uh, Omicron wanes. And yet, as AP notes, escalating costs for gasoline, wheat and metals such as aluminum, which are exported by both Ukraine and Russia, will likely accelerate inflation in the coming months. They note that inflation has already reached its highest level since 1982, with price spikes especially high for necessities like food, gas and rent, which even as Americans are making more money, you can bet your bottom dollar that the corporate media and Republicans will be spending a lot of time talking about that aspect, not about all of the other booming aspects of Joe Biden's economy, at least until this year's critical midterm elections. As Emily Peck at Axios reported this week in uh, a piece headlined, Voters Aren't Feeling the Record Job Gains Polling Fines. I wonder why. The U.S. economy saw record job growth over the past year, Peck reports, but a lot of regular folks apparently didn't get the memo. A new poll from a progressive data firm finds 35 percent of voters believe the country is experiencing more job losses than usual. Hmm. Just 33 uh, percent think the country is experiencing about the same job loss. When asked which of the following statements do you think is most accurate, there were more jobs created last year or more jobs were lost last year, a plurality of 37% thinks more jobs were lost last year, while just 28% correctly said that they believed more jobs were created last year. In fact, some 6.6 .6 million, an all-time record for any single year, 
since record-keeping began back in the 1930s, were in fact added last year, which after Joe Biden mentioned that number during his State of the Union last Tuesday, the New York Times fact-checked him to say that it was only partially true. Why? Well, because Biden didn't mention that records uh, on this go only go back to as far as 1931. So that made it partially true, even though it is obviously true, an all-time record for a single year. In the survey conducted last week by Navigator Research, only 19% of Americans believe the U.S. is seeing more job growth than usual, which is just remarkable. It's a remarkable failure of the media that I have... Well, noted once or twice on this program, uh, as former Washington Post columnist Dan Frumkin writes in his Press Watch newsletter today, uh, he noticed it as well. It's headlined, when the public thinks up is down, it's time to rethink coverage. He said, imagine if you're the editor of a major national news organization and you learn that the general public is terribly misinformed about an important issue that your reporters cover intensely. Say you see poll results showing that a lot of people believe something that is diametrically opposed to the truth. Well, you'd probably call a meeting. You'd say, hey, what we're doing isn't working. You'd ask, what are we doing wrong? And once you figured it out, you'd say, well, let's stop that. Let's try something else. But you aren't the editor of a major national news organization, are you? Writes Dan. And what they say is, well, whatever. Dan notes that poll from uh, Navigator that Axios highlighted and uh, and several others. He asked, what is driving this? He says, well, inflation is at 7.5 percent. It's eating up wage gains for many Americans and the unsettling effects of the pandemic, such as product shortages, are still playing out. He says those are factors. But how big a factor is it that almost everything they hear on the news about the economy is negative. He says it's not just the right-wing media either. He took a close look last month at uh, corporate coverage of the December jobs report, and what he says he found was that the Washington Post and the New York Times seem to go out of their way to find bad things to say about the economy. So see, it's not just me. Not coincidentally, he adds, Post and Times reporters often link President Biden's re-election hopes to the health of the economy. He goes on, he, he finds this all over the place. He goes on to cite other ways in which the corporate media is yet again misleading the American people. But I've got to get to my guest today. So I will point you over to uh, Dan's newsletter at presswatchers.org. I'll give you that link when I post today's show at uh, bradblog.com. But I mean, we're just going to have to keep on pounding this because it's insane. We've got a booming economy, yes. We do have inflation. Inflation, by the way, is not altogether a bad thing. But the fact that Americans, they're not giving their you know, opinion, their, their, their belief, their feelings. They're, they're telling you what they think they know about the economy, and they are wildly wrong. Frumkin blames the media. So do I. It's their job. It's our job to inform the electorate so they can make informed decisions when it's time to vote this n November. And um, we are not in on track for a, an informed decision this November. So 
We'll talk more about that, I suspect, in the days ahead. Right now, let's take a quick break and head out to somewhere in England. <laughs> where the Quincy Institute's Russia-Ukraine expert last night uh, put out a proposal for a peace agreement on the table, or at least at the Quincy Institute's website. Can all of the parties find a path to peace as the war and misery and atrocities continue in Ukraine? We will discuss that and much more with Anatole Levin right after this. I'm Brad Friedman, and you are listening to The Bradcast. <laughs> What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. All we are saying is give peace a chance. Mm-hmm. All we are saying is give peace a chance. Yes, please. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. This was the Ukraine ambassador to the UN, Sergei Kislitsia, at uh, the United Nations Security Council on Friday, condemning the Russian military's attack on the largest nuclear power plant in Europe overnight. We have survived the night that could have stopped the history of Ukraine and Europe, said the president of Ukraine this morning. Indeed, every day provides us with uh, newer and newer evidence uh, that it is not only Ukraine under Russian attack. It is Europe. It is the entire world. It is humanity. And finally, it is the future of the next generations. Ukraine's ambassador went on to accuse Russia on Friday of lying about its takeover of the plant. The Russian ambassador, for his part, claimed that uh, their troops took over the plant by force only to prevent its takeover by, quote, terrorists. Clearly, we are in very dangerous territory here, as the ambassador said, not only for Ukraine, but for the world. We've been very clear on this program, both before and since Russia launched its horrific invasion of Ukraine, that in recent decades, both the U.S. and NATO have made mistakes that helped hasten the otherwise unprovoked, heartbreaking, often unspeakable atrocities that Russia is now inflicting on its sovereign neighbor nation. But we've also made clear that while there was a time to hash out those matters and hold the U.S. and NATO accountable for that aggression that is rightly or wrongly seen as such by Russia and its president, Vladimir Putin, the world must now be uncompromising in its condemnation of the way that Russia ultimately has chosen to handle its disputes with the West. Happily, and there is not much to be happy about in this current conflict, pretty much the entirety of the Western world has now unified in opposition to Russia's act of war and arguably war crimes in Ukraine. And yet, while the West may hold the moral high ground in these current circumstances, 
High moral ground comes at a very large cost in lives for the Ukrainian people and in all sorts of other ways for those not in Ukraine. While the current sanctions could result in an eventual humanitarian crisis for the Russian people themselves, many of whom oppose Putin's actions in Ukraine, the rest of the world will also face sacrifices. As the Quincy Institute's Russia-Ukraine expert Anatole Levin concluded his article there on Thursday headlined How to Get to a Place of Peace for Ukraine, he writes, Western economic sanctions against Russia are entirely correct and very damaging to Russia, but they also have serious implications for the world economy as a whole, especially in terms of inflation. Oil and gas prices have already risen sharply in ways that will benefit Russia and offset some of the effects of Western sanctions. We must also not forget that Russia is the world's largest food exporter and higher global food prices have the capacity to destabilize states around the world, including key U.S. allies. Finally, while Beijing has done its best to hold aloof from this conflict, he writes permanent Western economic warfare against Russia will inevitably drive Russia into greater dependence on China. He concludes, historians of the future should condemn Russia very harshly indeed for its invasion of Ukraine, but they will also not forgive the West if we fail to promote a reasonable peace. The voices of those in the West who favor sacrificing innumerable Ukrainian lives to advance other geopolitical ambitions against Russia must be resisted. Anatole Levin is Senior Research Fellow on Russia and Europe at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Now there's an idea. He was formerly a professor at Georgetown University in Qatar and in the War Studies Department of King's College London. He's a member of the academic board of the Valdai Discussion Club in Russia and a member of the advisory committee of the South Asia, South Asia Department of the British Foreign and Commonwealth Office. He also worked as a British journalist in South Asia, the former Soviet Union, and Eastern Europe, and covered the wars in Afghanistan, Chechnya, and the Southern Caucasus. So yes, he may have some knowledge in these matters. He's also the author of several books on Russia and its neighbors, including The Baltic Revolutions and Ukraine and Russia, A Fraternal Rivalry. His latest book that I hope we'll be able to have him back on uh, this show at another time to discuss, as it's also a topic near and dear to us here at the broadcast, is Climate Change and the nation state. Whatever happened to that? Anatole Levin joins us today from somewhere in England, I believe. Anatole Levin, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Hello. I uh, I want to get to your uh, to your roadmap, if you will, for a place of peace in Ukraine, uh, as you detailed at the Quincy Institute yesterday. But first, I'd love to tap into some of your expertise on this conflict and the parties involved to sort of help both me and our largely American audience understand why we are even at this point in the first place, if you don't mind. Uh, first. In general terms, uh, Anatole, what does Putin actually want? Why is he doing this? And when I ask about what he actually wants, I mean both on the sort of macro historic level and on the immediate aims of this war, since it seems like there might have been many other means to meet many of the uh, of the objectives that he now claims to be seeking. Well, there are two elements, um, not just to Putin.
Putin's thinking, but to that of the, the top um, Russian security elites. I mean, one is entirely comprehensible in American terms. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is that they do not want a hostile uh, military alliance uh, to extend itself to their nearest neighbours. Um, the Russians talk so much about the Monroe Doctrine, you th- you'd thought that they invented it. Uh, so, I mean, that is fairly straightforward. What, however, makes this you know, much you know, even more dangerous mm-hmm. uh, is that the, the, there is also a nationalist element uh, you, you know, the, the, the Russians, um, many Russians consider that Ukraine is basically part of Russia, mm-hmm. uh, or at the very least, that um, those uh, areas which were transferred to Ukraine under Soviet rule uh, should return to Russia, mm-hmm. um, and that Russia has a right to act as the representative of the uh, Russian and Russian-speaking minority in Ukraine. So, if you like, it's... Um, you know, uh, it's as if Americans regarded Mexico not just, uh, you know, somewhere that must be kept out of a Chinese military alliance, mm-hmm. but also, in a way, regarded Mexico um, as a part of America that had broken away. This is, I think, what, what makes this mixture on the Russian side so particularly aggressive and toxic. And uh, to the ends of uh, what he is actually trying to accomplish, that's that's sort of the the macro picture. But what what does he think? How does he think he can get to that place with the war that he is currently carrying out? What are the aims of that war? Have has he just decided that's it? We're taking over Ukraine. It belongs to Russia. End of story. Well, first of all. I have to say, I mean, which I'm afraid so many so-called experts on Russia don't say, is I, I don't have access to Vladimir Putin's brain. Okay. Um, you know, anyone who, who says uh, this is what um, Vladimir Putin is thinking uh, should be asked, how do you know? <laughs> okay. Um, look, I mean, all I can say is t- two things. I mean, one is that there are the, the, the Russian official demands which are on the table, mm-hmm. you know which is that uh, Ukraine should sign a treaty of neutrality so that it, you know, it, it can't join NATO. I mean, by the way, I mean, that would mean that it couldn't join a Russian alliance either. Mm-hmm. Um, that uh, Ukraine should demilitarize. What this means is not entirely clear, but the Russian foreign minister has said that this means not having offensive missile stations in Ukraine, so a bit like the Cuban Missile Crisis in reverse. But it should denazify. That means um, presumably cracking down on Ukrainian extreme nationalist groups, and that it should recognize Russian sovereignty over Crimea, uh, which Russia took, or according to Russians, took back from Ukraine Mm -hmm. in 2014 after the revolution. Now, those are the official Russian demands. It is widely suspected that what Putin wants to do uh, is to replace the government of the whole of Ukraine. Uh, But... A, that's not clear. The Russian foreign minister has said that Russia continues to recognize the Ukrainian government of President Zelensky as the you know, legitimate government of Ukraine. The second thing is that if that was Putin's intention at the start, then we must at least hope that the, you know, the tremendously brave and united resistance mm-hmm. of the Ukrainians against this uh, Russian invasion um, have... I mean, they must, well, I mean, every Russian analyst I've talked to has said that this must have proved to Putin and the Russian leadership that this simply would not work, that the Ukrainians will never, you know, accept a a Russian puppet government. Mm -hmm. 
over them. Um, and I mean, since it's quite clear that the Russian military campaign is not going uh, entirely as planned, um, we can at least hope that if that was Putin's intention, that the Ukrainians have changed his mind. Uh, if uh, you know, I've been reading a lot about it, uh, about this, and of course, there's all kinds of experts on all sides. Uh, and and I, you know, I generally understand the contour, the general contours of Putin's complaint about NATO's expansion to the east after the Cold War and so forth. But I've also seen the argument that that this is less about that, that this is about the idea of of a, of a very real threat. That he sees uh, posed by a neighboring former Soviet state operating as a free and open Western style market democracy and that that poses a great threat to his own autocratic hold over over Russia with the you know continuing growth of a similar democracy movement there that he has been holding down for years. That's led some to argue that Putin would have invaded no matter what the U.S. and NATO had done. And I, again, I know we can't get into his uh, into his mind, but does that do you see any truth in that? Well, you can read the memoir of the present head of the CIA. Mm-hmm. William Burns, you know, not a not a Russian. Um, mm-hmm. And if you read that memoir, the back channel, he says, uh, you know, when he was ambassador in Moscow, all members of the Russian establishment, and by the way, not just Putin, but um, even you know, liberal Russians, mm-hmm. uh, were saying that um, to take Ukraine into NATO uh, was a threat to vital Russian interests and basically a challenge that Russia would have to meet. Russian officials have been saying this since NATO expansion first began in the mid-90s. You know, we don't like uh, NATO expansion to Eastern Europe, but we'll accept it. But if NATO tries to take in uh, or to turn, you know, Ukraine and Georgia into military allies against Russia, Mm -hmm. uh, there will be a best confrontation and a war. uh, and, and by the way, I mean, this was echoed by some of the greatest American experts mm-hmm. on Russia, including George Kennan. Um, that, you, you know, this has been said, and by the way, I mean, this was said once again, you know, I was a journalist, a British journalist in, in Russia in the 1990s. This was uh, said, and in public, not just to me, by leading Russian liberals as well, mm-hmm. under Yeltsin, not under Putin. So, I mean, the point is we've been told this again and again and again. I think that the reason why so many people you know, in America and the West and in NATO are now saying this is basically to cover their own tracks. They were warned repeatedly that this was going to lead to war. Uh, they didn't want to listen. And now they're saying that, um, you know, that it wasn't, it, it wasn't about NATO expansion because they don't want to acknowledge that they were warned that mm. this would lead. Mm-hmm. crisis and possibly war, and the people who warned them were were right. I mean, that, that doesn't, of course, in any way excuse Putin's invasion. Uh, but, um, you know, William Burns, once again, today the head of the CIA, uh, says that, you know, the, for, for the United States, um, NATO expansion went on autopilot, was his phrase, mm. and became detached from any sense either of American interests or of realities on the ground. Mm-hmm. I mean, he is absolutely clear that, um, that for Russia, uh, this was an absolute red line. So look, I mean, as I said before, the point is that we don't know what's going on in, in Putin's head, but we do know what the Russians have said repeatedly mm-hmm. for almost 30 years.
Now, uh, in in Putin's uh, lengthy speech on the eve of war, as he declared the regions of the Donbass territories in eastern Ukraine to be independent republics, uh, he made his case for military action by claiming, quote, the purpose of this operation is to protect people who for eight years now have been facing humiliation and genocide perpetrated by the Kiev regime. To this end, we will seek to demilitarize and denazify Ukraine. Anatoly, even how bad is Ukraine's problem with its ultra-nationalist uh, neo-Nazi uh, Azov movement? My understanding is that they have no political power in parliament. Uh, but is it the widespread movement that Putin and Russia have long tried to describe it as, even as they have a Jewish president now who lost family members in the Holocaust, uh, etc.? No, I mean, th- this is absolutely grotesque Russian propaganda, you know, colossally exaggerated. And obviously, the the, 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 the accusation about Zelensky himself mm-hmm. is, you know, un- unspeakably mendacious and, and grotesque. No, I mean, I think the, the, the point is that, as you say, I mean, Azov and, and the extreme right uh, have very limited political support. What they do have, of course, is a degree of um, street power, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, their activists are, are capable of, of mobilizing violent street demonstrations, which gives them, you know, a level of influence beyond their actual support. Mm-hmm. I mean, where you could say that Russia does have a case, um, but obviously genocide is, is a ridiculous charge. Um, but it's true that over the past two years, uh, the Ukrainian state has introduced measures which discriminate pretty harshly against the Russian language. Mm-hmm in Ukraine. On paper, I mean, in practice, across large areas of Ukraine, Russian remains the first, um, the, the first language. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, the Ukrainians have refused to accord uh, the Russians in Ukraine uh, and the Russian language the status of an indigenous people and language. Um, and they have passed laws which would essentially banish Russian from public life if they were implemented. So um, that has been uh, a, um, a, a legitimate cause of Russian complaint. But, mm-hmm. you know, th- no, I mean, this is not Nazism and this is not genocide. I mean, that is a lie, uh, you know, on a on a, a truly monstrous scale by Putin. Your, uh, your bio describes that you're a member of the academic board of the Valdai Discussion Club in Russia. I don't know exactly what that means and if, if it might mean you've been in contact with Russians over this past week. Uh, either way, uh, do you have an understanding of how much the Russian people actually know about what is and isn't going on right now in Ukraine, given all the efforts by the Russian government to shut down independent media there and otherwise impose restrictions on what state-controlled media can and can't report about all of this? Do the Russian people know the truth about what is going on here in Ukraine, despite the attempt by the government to, to keep that information from them? Well, it depends. I mean, it's quite true. I mean, many ordinary Russians are, are simply, you know, deceived uh, by uh, official propaganda. But then, of course, you have to remember that uh, an awful lot of ordinary Russians are intermarried with Ukrainians. You know, mm-hmm. there's, there's a huge amount of intermingling of the two people. Mm-hmm. And uh, they are in touch with relatives in Ukraine mm-hmm. uh, who are telling them about what's going on and complain bitterly on the subject. And so I think that, you know, as especially as civilian casualties mount in Ukraine, and so many of these 
origin of these deaths will be among Russians, Ukrainian mm-hmm. Russians. I think that this could, over time, lead to a, a huge revulsion of feeling mm-hmm. in, um, uh, in, in the Russian people against this war. The, the other thing, of course, is that as far as educated Russians are concerned, um, they are much more aware, obviously, because they're in touch with international media and, and you know, follow the news, they're much more aware uh, of just how disastrously isolated Russia has become as a result of this war, and also, of course, they understand, which ordinary Russians may not, of the colossal economic damage to Russia, which is coming down the line. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, among the, uh, the the educated classes in Russia, there is deep, deep unease already uh, at this war. Um, and uh, you, you don't have to dig very deeply uh, to find people... Um, uh, of course, they have to be very quiet about it, but hoping, you know, really hoping and hoping, not just that the the war will end, but that, you know, that some means might be found to remove um, Putin from power. Well, that's what I'm wondering. Uh, if, if they do understand that, if they are distressed by the economic situation, has has do we know, is Putin so isolated from that that he does not even know that his people know and that his people, even if they do get upset about all of this, is he isolated enough that uh, that information won't even get through to him? It, it may be so. I mean, you know, it, it's not just um, Putin, but you, know, you could say that this reflects a common syndrome. You know, leaders who've been in power for too long, who've you know, overcome one challenge after another, they do get isolated and they do get arrogant. Um, and they tend to discount information which doesn't suit their prejudices. Mm-hmm. So I think, yes, I mean, it may well be that Putin um, is, and his staff are simply filtering out the news that they don't want to hear. Uh, mm-hmm. But I think that, you, you know, if some, that the estimates for the decline of the Russian economy over the next year, you know, range up from 5% to 20%. Now, when that really begins to bite uh, among ordinary Russians, you know, given a lot of Russians, you know, they 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 may uh, accept and understand Putin as basically a force of basic order, but they're um, they're they're also very unhappy, for example, with levels of official corruption in Russia, mm. and so I think that the potential is there for for very serious unrest. And by the way, I mean, I think that the moves by the the, the Putin regime, you know, to crack down on the last independent media uh, is very much part of preparing for that. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, they're essentially battening down the hatches against future discontent. But of course, I think if discontent discontent gets bad enough, it's it's not that, you know, crowds are going to storm the Kremlin. uh, But it may be that people within the regime itself will decide that the only way to save their position is... You know, not not. I mean, it, it could be all relatively consensual. Uh-huh. Um, you know, uh, uh, that, that, that to, to go to Putin and say, "Look, you know, Mr. President, uh, we will, um, you know, we will guarantee your personal safety and your wealth and those of that of your closest associates." But it's time to go, because after all, in a way, that's just how Putin himself came to power at the end of the nineties when you know Yeltsin decided that really it was time to go and hand it over to a trusted associate. So, I, I mean, I think um, if this goes wrong, as it appears to be going wrong, um, I think one can potentially already see the, the end of the Putin regime. And, well, at least the end of Putin, the end of, uh, as we've seen in Egypt and elsewhere, mm-hmm. 
the, the end of the dictator doesn't necessarily mean the end of the regime. Of mm. course, it can always generate successes. Good point. Uh, speaking about that end, and before we get to your peace plan here, one more question. You, you wrote at the Quincy Institute in, in your article on that peace plan that, quote, Putin is doubtless bluffing in his mobilization of Russia's nuclear deterrent. And while that is a very comforting thought that I was actually somewhat relieved, very happy to read, Anatoly, even what makes you so sure about that? You know, especially if he continues to sustain losses and, you know, in, in, in both the war and the sanctions drastically expand and their various consequences in the days and week ahead, weeks ahead. And yes, sure, uh, even if, you know, people in the Kremlin begin turning against him. What makes you so sure that he is bluffing in his uh, use of Russian nuclear deterrence? Well, I mean, he can't use it in Ukraine because, uh, after all, in the end, they have to be able to win over a certain number of Ukrainians and, you know, either do a deal with Ukraine or, or rule over parts of Ukraine. Mm-hmm. They don't want to rule over a nuclear wasteland. Um, but as far as the West is concerned, you know, if, if Putin launches nuclear missiles at America or Europe, um, well, Russia will cease to exist, Putin will cease to exist, and, well, humanity will cease to exist. So I think, uh, I mean, I think this is a a way of um, of frightening us. No, no, but I mean, what I'm worried about is, uh, you know, people talk now, and I think in many ways quite rightly, about how we're in a new Cold War with Russia. Well, my God, just remember the number of times when you know, through misunderstandings or high tension, you know, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, for example, we came so close, so close to nuclear annihilation. Mm-hmm. That in a couple of cases, it was just the wisdom you know, and caution of one man on the American or the Soviet side which saved us from mm-hmm. that. I mean, I'm not worried about, you know, Putin deciding to commit suicide by attacking the West, but if you have circumstances of very, very high tension... Um, you know, there, there is there is this appalling risk of you know of, of miscalculation and mm-hmm. um, and overreaction. Yep. Uh, yeah, I know, and I'm you know worried. Uh, you told our friends at the American Prospect recently that uh, you know NATO will absolutely uh, stay out of this; that they will not come and defend Ukraine. Uh, that that is probably true, but you know mistakes do happen on the on the borders, and I, I am still worried about NATO somehow being drawn in. And what the results of that ultimately could be. But uh, as I've got just a few more minutes here, uh, Anatole Levin, uh, the experts that I followed on on this all seem to suggest that both the U.S. and NATO uh, are going to have to face some tough realities if they want peace in Eastern Europe with Russia um, and its neighbors and Western alliances. I, I think you break down some of those tough realities, I think, in your Thursday article on how to get to a place of peace for Ukraine. And you offer a pretty clear, simple explanation, even for a layman like myself to understand, of what uh, all the parties sort of need to do in any peace agreement. And happily, they seem to be, uh, you know, the peace talks seem to be moving forward. What is the Anatole Levin plan then for peace in this case? And, and what do the parties need to agree to on all sides in, in broad terms? Well, I think the first is uh, some version of the Austrian Treaty of Neutrality, whereby uh, in the early 50s, Soviet troops and British and American troops withdrew from Austria and mm-hmm. allowed it to develop. By, by the way, to develop as a, 
uh, you know, as a very successful market democracy. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you, Austria had to be neutral. It was able, you know, to, to uh, uh, otherwise, you know, you, I, I visited Austria during this, the Cold War. It wasn't part of NATO, but from every other point of view, you wouldn't have known that you weren't in you know, Germany or Switzerland. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the, 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 the first thing. And I, I think that, you know, we and the Ukrainians should be able to grant that because, uh, of course, the point is that we've already proved we will not fight to defend Ukraine. Mm. Well, if we're not going to fight to defend Ukraine, how can Ukraine be, an, be a member of NATO? But the other thing you see that people tend to forget is that this is reciprocal. This is mutual. In, in 2013, Putin was... Uh, what really started the whole crisis of 2013 and the Ukrainian revolution um, was that Putin was trying to get Ukraine to join the Eurasian Union, dominated mm-hmm. by Russia. Mm-hmm. Well, don't forget, a treaty of neutrality cuts both ways. Mm-hmm. Ukraine can't join NATO, but it also can't join the, Euro- the Eurasian Union, just as Austria couldn't join NATO, but it couldn't join the Warsaw Pact either. Mm-hmm. So that's the first thing. Um, on um, two other points, I mean, they are difficult, in, in largely, I mean, but they can I mean, I think you know it will require diplomatic compromise and fudges. I mean, obviously, Ukraine can't demilitarize if it means giving up its armed forces. Uh, but the Russian foreign minister has suggested that this maybe just means giving, you know, not um, having the stationing of um, uh, of missiles in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a solution along the lines of the Cuban uh, missile crisis. Mm-hmm. The most difficult thing, um, symbolically, is that the Russians are, are, are demanding. Um, recognition of Ru- Russian sovereignty over Crimea. Uh, the reason, by the way, um, they're doing that, I asked Russians about this, is they were saying, for God's sake, why didn't you just shelve this? You know, it's been shelved for eight years. So the problem is that in recent years, the Ukrainians have been blockading water to um, Crimea mm. and basically, you know, uh, doing terrible damage to the Crimean economy. Mm-hmm. So we need their recognition so that that won't happen again. Of course, there, as with the uh, now, you know, recognized by the Russians, uh, independent republics of the Donbass, the thing to remember is, of course, that, that they have been out of Ukraine now for eight years. Mm-hmm. It's not that Ukraine is actually, in practice, giving up anything more. So um, I think that, in principle, in a rational world, which, of course, is not the world that we inhabit, um, <laughs> A peace agreement along these lines, but of course including the complete withdrawal of Russian forces from all the new areas they've occupied, should be possible. Um, And, uh, of course, the thing to keep in mind is that this would not prevent the West uh, from, you know, delivering massive aid to Ukraine, Mm -hmm. uh, economic aid, um, in, in a way that would help Ukraine, you know, like Austria, like Finland, develop as a successful free market democracy. I mean, all it would do would be, uh, you know, make sure that Ukraine couldn't militarily join the West. I mean, look, the the thing is, uh, uh, you have to ask yourself, you know, what what is wrong with this solution? If what you really care about is, um, is ending the war and, you know, saving the lives of Ukrainians and eliminating the threat of nuclear annihilation, and, you know, people need to say just what is wrong with an agreement along these lines. And by the way, I mean, if, if you know, this were offered and if the Russians then refused it and introduced new demands, mm-hmm. like replacing the Ukrainian government, then we would know that Putin's ambitions went much further. Mm-hmm. And that, of course, would be totally 
illegitimate. Um, and a peace agreement would be impossible. But you see, we, we don't know that until uh, until that has been offered. Understood. And so essentially, if I can just uh, sort of review, we're talking about uh, neutrality for Ukraine. Russia gets to keep Crimea and the Donbass regions that it has already uh, accepted. It would have to leave any territory that it has gained essentially over the past week. And the West, if I understand, lift all sanctions against Russia, not just the new ones, but the ones that have been put in place for many years, uh, uh, you know, essentially since uh, 2014 and the uh, takeover of Crimea. Etc. And then we find out if that is acceptable to Putin, because that is essentially what he has claimed to want at this point, if I understand you. Do you get the sense that Putin actually wants a peace agreement at this point, something along these lines? I don't know. <laughs> I, I, you know once again, I, I don't know. I mean, we, but we won't know until... You know, until we have offered. I mean, by the way, of course, um, uh, Russia would have to absolutely guarantee um, uh, non-aggression. You know, no future attacks on Ukraine, um, and uh, the uh, sovereignty of and territorial of in, uh, integrity of of Ukraine minus those areas. I think, though, you know, it's worth pointing out that I, I think the Ukrainian resistance so far, like that of the Finns, by the way. In, 
you know, he, he, he has said, look, what, the only way out of all these territorial disputes and messes is local democracy. You know, have um, local votes under international supervision, um, you know, mm. run by the United Nations or whoever, mm-hmm. um, and just ask the local people, what do you want in Crimea, in the Donbass, in Kosovo, mm-hmm. and respect the results. I, I think, you know, that that is... And, and anyway. well, it does seem fair enough. Uh, of course, that would uh, b- presume that Putin would also accept the results as well. Obviously, we saw the results uh, of a similar referendum in Crimea some years ago, and and ninety uh, percent of the people there wanted to stay with Russia. So, um, yeah. I, you know, I I I'm impressed with your plan. It does make sense, uh, and maybe all of it underscores the uh, the opening quote that you use uh, in your article, "How to Get to a Place of Peace for Ukraine," where you quote where you quote Robert A. Lovett, the uh, U.S. Secretary of Defense from 1951 to 1953, who said, "Forget the cheese, let's get out of the trap." And maybe that's exactly what we all need to do right now. Anatole Levin, a former British correspondent in Afghanistan, Pakistan, and the countries of the late Soviet Union, an expert and author on Russia and Ukraine, now a senior research fellow at Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Uh, you can go to responsiblestatecraft.org and read his writings. I will uh, link to it as well. And you can also find him on the Twitters at Levin, that's L-I-E-V-E-N, underscore Anatole. Anatole Levin, really appreciate your insight and expertise uh, on this today. Hope you don't mind if we bother you again in the not-too-distant future. It's great pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, well, that was helpful. Yes. Let's, uh, we, I ran long, so let's take a quick break. <laughs> we'll figure out, uh, well, well, why don't we talk about that? I know you had you were writing furiously there, Desi Doyne. You've yep. got some thoughts, I suspect. We'll talk about them right after this on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is supporting you and the things that you care about. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to counter the powerful corporate media echo chamber. Right now, as much as ever. If you choose to support us, you can do it really easily, safely, and quickly via brandblog.com donate. From Desi Doyen and myself... Thank you. Who is that? The Vitamin String Quartet. The Vitamin String Quartet? Yeah. All right. Well, we will uh, take our shot of vitamins and uh, get our peace any way we can. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Really helpful, really insightful interview there with Anatole Levin. You know, I've talked on the show for the past several weeks, actually, since Russia started building up its uh, troops on the border, how it has been very difficult to find folks who didn't have a particular acts to grind one way or another yeah. on all sides of this uh, this discussion. You see a lot on TV. You see a lot of military experts 
from the, yes, military-industrial complex that seem to be, uh, you know, talking about military strategy and, and uh, in one sense, I think, making things a lot worse. You don't see a lot of talk about how to find our way to peace, even if that means, um, yeah, the U.S. and NATO are going to have to pay a price for it. You had some thoughts, I know, as I was speaking with Anatole Levin there, Des. Yeah, basically, um, you know, he posits the idea that they're getting out of the trap instead of uh, focusing on the cheese, as you put uh, yes, it. Yes, yes. Um, to me, the idea that there is a path forward to peace is a great and I hopeful thing. But my concern is that Putin's real aim is to reconstitute the Soviet empire mm-hmm. and a takeover of Ukraine would put Russia on NATO's doorstep. And that does not have very many peaceful resolutions that I can think of, but hey, I'm no foreign policy expert. They so. put Russia on NATO's doorstep by taking over Ukraine. Now they are neighbor, actually neighboring with uh, NATO nations right. like Poland and so forth. Yeah, and if his goal is to reconstitute the Soviet empire, then Poland and all those guys are next. Well, I guess we will see, as uh, as he notes, you know, putting forward uh, these these, you know, Ukraine um, neutrality, uh, letting them keep Crimea, lifting sanctions. If that happens, if that is put forward and they still say, no, that's not enough, then I guess we'll know the answer. I guess then. You will be right about that, and I don't we will learn. Be, yes. I know you don't, but we, you know, we got we do got to start somewhere. And so, yes, please, someone, give peace a chance. All right, we have got to get out. My thanks again to Anatole Levin of the Quincy Institute for responsible statecraft, and to my uh, producer Desi Doyen, and mm-hmm. to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, you can always download them for free at bradblog.com. We are able to stay on your public airwaves and report the way we do thanks to those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help support our work so we can keep going. You can drop me email. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Brad Blog. We will see you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Good luck, world.